Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 31 of Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. And now, if you're like me, sometimes you just get thrown out of the loop. You don't know what's going on, especially with this whole tech thing. Because, yeah, technology just runs everything in our modern lives. Well, we've got just a guest for you. and His name is Seamus Byrne. He comes to us from Down Under and is the head of the digital tech site, Mr. Byteside, that is B-Y-T-E, for those of you who are in the techno. And if you're not, now you know. And we want to thank Seamus for his time as we continue our coverage of Ready Player One. This is officially week two of the celebration. So before we actually get the predictions of the future from Seamus himself, we'd like to talk about our social media as we always like to do. <laughs> if you got here by accident, you can find us by searching for Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, we, we like to keep the conversation going on our blog. We, we like to share some deep thoughts, you know, some of the personal off-the-cuff things there. But hey, if you like reading, we write stuff. So pay us a visit, check out the extra content, and stay a while. We're going to share some more stuff during the week. Without further ado, let's get Seamus on the line. Folks, welcome back. Today, we are joined by award-winning journalist and broadcaster who for many years has covered the future of technology, video games, and digital culture. He's known for being the founding editor of the Australian edition of Gizmodo, later becoming an editor for CNET and managing, uh, or actually working for Manage Science Alert, as well as Innovation Australia. Now, he also operates Byteside, covering the business and culture of technology, internet, games, esports, and more. He's also apparently the deadliest man on earth with a yo-yo. We welcome Seamus Byrne. How are we doing, Seamus? <laughs> really good. And look, yeah, that, that list of jobs does sound like I've changed jobs way too often over the past two decades. But, you know, that's it. There's a long timeline there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, I can't remember where you spotted the yo-yo thing, but that is that is also definitely a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I, I'm very interested to see, like, hear about, like, your freelance work. And if that was, like, your only source of income for a while is just freelance work, and if an editor ever offered you a nice box of Christmas meat instead of an actual job. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've managed to keep keep my editors on the side of uh, of cash money in my bank account uh, rather than yeah, just pure barter trade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we've 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 moved on from leaving a box of you know of uh, fruits and vegetables to to pay people you know on their stoop. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. But. Uh, I mean, but either way, uh, it's it's great to have you. Um, as part of the introduction on on this show, um, we do like to give a little bit of background to our listeners about like entry points for folks in their fields, or you know, um, sometimes even going as far back as their hometowns and and learning a bit more about that origin story. Um, so, whether you'd like to kind of give us the the quick origin story from that standpoint, or your relationship with technology. I think either one's going to be interesting to, to hear. Yeah, cool. So look, I was uh, a big nerd in the, you know, 80s and 90s was my main little growing up phase before I started finding, you know, work things in my life. Uh, and I never got to have my own Atari 2600 or Nintendo. So there was definitely, I think, that, you know, the unattainable 
thing about it. It meant I was ever more intrigued by my friends and going over to their houses and like playing with with the consoles and doing, you know, all-nighter sleepovers where we would just sit there and play like barnstorming all night on an Atari 2600 um, or Berserk. Good times. Uh, but in the 90s then, oh, I did ha I did get one computer in the 80s and that was my TRS-80 Color Computer 2 uh, from Radio Shack. Yeah. Uh, and it was like the poor man's Commodore 64. And I know I've been hassled by TRS-80 fans for saying that in the past. So I apologize. <laughs> I, it comes from a place of love. <laughs> but uh, yeah, once I kind of started to get into the uni phase, that's when I think everything changed for me where I'd always loved dabbling and I tried to write my own code on the computer I had, mm -hmm. tried to write like uh, things where I could play uh, Dungeons & Dragons by like typing up kind of character generators and stuff in my, you know, in my computer. Um, cool. But I hit uni in 94, January 94, because we're, we're like a calendar year down here in Australia. Um, and that was when I got the internet for the first time. And so okay. getting into, I was doing computer science and I got into the computer lab and we like, here's your login credentials and I just would never had it at home at that point. Uh, and the first integrated web browser, Xmosaic on Unix, had just come out in like November 93. So it was kind of just a few months after that first unified web browser had arrived. And I really do remember getting into this lab, going, okay, how does this whole lab thing work? What do you mean we've got networks computers? And then, oh, there's this internet thing and I can start searching for just anything. And that mixture of going on to news groups, of course, that was kind of the main thing at the time before we, yeah. you, know, you could literally surf to the end of the web at the time. You'd be like, well, I've read all the pages. Okay. <laughs> what do we do now? Um, you know, Yahoo was an actual list of websites that was manually put together. <laughs> um, yeah. But I knew, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do something to do with this new internet thing. I remember there being debates amongst other people around me of like, ah, oh, this is like, it's just going to be a small thing. And I was just like, no, this is going to be everything. Um, so over the course of my uni time, I actually dropped out of computer science because I they made us play with circuit boards and stuff. And I was just like, this isn't really what I care about. Like I want to do the code, not the building. Um mm -hmm. And yeah, I just really started to learn how to build web pages and things. Also did like video production and stuff like that. And I think through that kind of journey, I realized, yeah, you know, I was learning a lot of the the actual skills for making stuff and uh, across, you know, all sorts of AV and um, website building. But then the degree I ended up finishing in was kind of a media and communications degree. So like a journalism style degree, but it was very practical still. Uh, so I still thought I'd build web pages and stuff. And then, you know, cut to 2001 and I was living in London. I'd moved to London. I thought I'd get a job as a web developer and a recruiter actually sent me for a job as a journalist because they went, hey, like, have you thought about doing this? And I got my first break as a technology journalist. And that's kind of what I realized. I'm like, I, I love doing it and I love knowing it inside out and the nerding out on it. Mm -hmm. But... I realized I'm really good at helping explain this stuff to other people and why they should care about it and why it matters. Uh, and so, yeah, it really has now been, I guess, 20 years um, to the year of uh, 
doing that version where I'm like, I love it and I love making stuff, but I also really love trying to help other people understand why they should care about it and what that, you know, what's the next tick here? What what comes after the current thing, especially when back then people used to kind of shrug their shoulders a bit and go, yeah, is this really going to stick around? Um, I think there's a little bit less of that. Now it's more like they're going, well, you know, I've got a smartphone, so what? And you're like, well, did you not notice it changed everything over the last 10 years? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's why I love Byteside because uh, just kind of go down that path for a moment here because, uh, you know, Byteside does a combination of explaining all of these different aspects of, you know, whether it's culture, whether it's technology, um, and really kind of balancing all of it well. Um, And and so I I was interested to dig into Byteside a little bit if you could – um, explain how that formed and and how that project got off the ground. Yeah, so look, I yeah, appreciate you saying that. I think m- the original idea for Byteside for me was always I just want an outlet that wants to talk about it in the same way I want to hear about it, and obviously the way I like to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but the big thing was real. You know, I I feel like you know, and I've, I've loved working at CNET and I loved all the, you know, the Gears and Kotaku and all those sites that I've worked for in the past. But um, I think, you know, and I will actually think Gizmodo and Kotaku and Lifehacker are always, I really love the idea that the writer's voice is very clear, you know, that the writer is able to express how much they love the thing that they're talking about, or if they're annoyed that you will read it, you can tell what, you know, what they're feeling about a subject. Um, but I've also always loved, you know, through especially my freelance era so i did spend like seven years as a full-time freelancer um yeah and like you're saying earlier i really there were phases when i had to explain to my parents no no i'm not freelance as in i earn no money i i literally do make a full-time living writing for (laughs) other people Mm -hmm. but what i loved was in any given story i just like it could be an enterprise technology story right i remember doing a story once about you know call center technology and totally, it's like, you know, this is a high-end enterprise business kind of a tech. But I saw this keynote where the head of the company was kind of telling off all the people in the room for the fact that they were using the software wrong and that if they were using it better, then, you know, they could demographically match somebody ringing up the call center with the person in the call center, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, whether you're like a 70 year old dude or you're a, like a 25 year old woman, well, you've got all kinds of people in your call center and we can try to match that so that the person will understand their perspective on life when they're then trying to, you know, it might be they've got a complaint, but if the person listening to the complaint kind of understands you, then you feel a lot better about it. And I remember just sitting there and going, this is like a story anybody would find interesting, not just the, you know, the newspaper that has asked me to write about this for businesses. Uh, and so I've always tried to kind of, yeah, I think Byteside has helped me try to combine that where I'm like, why not write about whatever is interesting? And that might be the business side of a piece of tech, or it might be a game, it might be esports, but with everything, just that clarity in the way you're writing about it, that means you know, again, my voice is clear and especially in the, the business stuff, I think, you know, there's a lot of that kind of writing where I try to mean, yeah, make it as just interesting and engaging as possible for whoever's reading it. I mean, Byteside first started 10 years ago. We tried to do it as like a, a pub video 
like a live show in pubs where we would get a panel of guests and we would actually have a chat and shoot it on video. Uh, it was before we could live stream. Uh, it was kind of hilarious to think back and go, we, we were just a little bit too early because even YouTube, we couldn't put up videos longer than five minutes in 2010 uh, because that's yeah. just, that's what YouTube was at the time. Mm -hmm. It was short clips. And so we kind of had to pay for our own like video hosting to, you know, to put it on our website. And then that got expensive. And um, it was just, yeah, really true. You know, and just that distribution wasn't there yet for that kind mm -hmm. of thing, let alone going live online, right? Like we just couldn't do it. Um, you know, and now kicking off the new version of Byteside, you know, we've got a pandemic to deal with, so we can't go and do pub shows or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just trying to be its own thing where let's cover everything, let's enjoy chatting about it. And it's what's nice is I did a survey recently, you know, as trying to put the pitch together to get more, you know, sponsors and advertisers involved. And I've, you know, talking to friends in the industry, they're like, why, you know, why would a you know, business want to kind of advertise on your site? And I've realized through the process of surveying that I'm like, because nerds like talking about all this stuff, even if they work at a really big company. They just they still enjoy reading about it in the context of you know nerding out. So mm -hmm. we can talk about everything, and that person also happens to you know buy software for their thousand person company as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. it's totally true because uh, I used to work in engineering staff for just about five years, and and I, I ran across that too, where you would have folks that are sometimes they're more excited to actually work on the technology than they are to, you know, uh, even worry about how much they're getting paid for that job, right? There are people geeking out about, unfortunately, actually designing the chips and, and the SCs. I, I apologize for you getting out of that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I some of the most impassioned folks I've seen in the industry were, you know, the low-level embedded, you know, coders, programmers, everyone looked at it. You know, the people who are building, like, the life guts and the startup, uh, you know, systems for these these products. So. Um, I, I totally believe in that from what you just said. I mean, it's, it's something I've seen time and time again. And, um, and that's why I think Byteside is such a great resource because you mentioned that I'm already feeling it. Like I, I can find this site that I find interest in immediately, whether it's a, a movie runtime, it's a technology reference. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different things you can find on this website, guys. So definitely give Byteside a, a, a try here. Um, We'll put it in the notes. You'll be able to find it. Cheers. I'm not going to hide it from mm -hmm. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to actually, yeah, shout out to uh, The Register is one of my other favorite websites for this because they're like all about, you know, hardcore engineering and business technology, but like they love putting a pun in every single headline if they can, you know, and I just love mm -hmm. that it's like it's clearly a bunch of nerds who really know what they're talking about, but they're nerds. They're fundamentally nerds and they want to show that off by cracking jokes every chance they get. <laughs> yep. They always intend the pun and I can I can do nothing but respect people who do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. And, and Seamus, we appreciate you uh, taking us through that journey with you. Um, one thing about this week, what we're actually doing, if if we've maybe kept it too much of a of a secret uh this week's going to be dedicated to continuing our conversation about ready player one so we've discussed a little bit about the 2018 film uh, as well as the 2011 book written by ernest klein uh, that of course was adapted into that blockbuster um, 
the film itself explores the futuristic world where virtual reality simulations take place of many of the physical interactions of, of the world that takes place within. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on to the show is to discuss, you know, some of these, these parallels to technology that we have now um, and really begin to understand if this is something that could happen and to kind of get into the weeds of, of what's here yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the Mark, building blocks. I'm sure. glad I'm glad you brought all that up because with all this journalism talk, I realized I have the wrong notes open because I have nothing but getting pictures of Spider-Man from my editor for my freelance work <laughs> over here. Oh, so <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and fix my notes and we'll Yeah, go tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we Joe's very big on puns and, and references. He's very good yeah. at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Seamus, looking at uh, some of the building blocks of, of the universe of Ready Player One and comparing it to what we have now, um, one of the conversations I had about Ready Player One very early on with my brother and some of my friends about this was analyzing the social MMO. You know, a lot of folks are familiar with MMORPGs, right? Um, but the social MMO can be a little bit different despite being a large aspect of the MMORPG, right? Um, and this is what constitutes a very large part of what's called, you know, the Oasis, the, the simulation in the movie, in the, in the book. Um, so what I wanted to ask you about when it came to MMOs, especially this social focused type, um, from what you've observed in your career, um, do you see kind of an issue with, with the adoption rates in MMOs, especially the social ones? when you start to envision like a worldwide presence here? Yeah, I think, I mean, if we go back to, you know, the likes of Second Life, which was probably one of those first big attempts to, you know, commercialize in a sense that idea of it's just, it's a free form space and you can even, you know, buy and sell land and property within this space. And they were, you know, trying to sort of have that arm's length idea of saying, let's, Let's try to pretend there's not even a company behind the scenes that technically runs servers and owns it all. Um, th that kind of context, it right. I'm already jumping around in my head because I'm like, look, it it kind of it got a lot of attention from people looking from the outside and kind of going, oh, what's that thing? But at the same time, it struggled to encourage many people to you know necessarily participate. But at exactly the same time, yeah, I'm like, it was pretty early in the whole, you know, adoption of of tech in and of itself. Um, yeah, it was probably pretty early. Yeah, as in, we were still pretty much having to go into the study and sit down in front of a desktop computer at the time that Second Life was getting a lot of attention. You know, not many people had that sense of having access everywhere that you go, anytime you want it. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I'm already, you know, I feel like tripping myself over there in that idea of what was it doing wrong? It's like, well, it did a lot of things right. And the community that it built loved what it was doing. Um, I think when you then send that out to a larger scale, though, you know, you definitely had the weird issues of things like people trying to hold a serious... Uh, almost academic conference 
uh, in Second Life and then somebody sends a fleet of flying dicks into the room that just kind of <laughs> overwhelms the event, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah. um, how do we how do we deal with that? And you're like, well, you get that little, that added online anonymity aspect that means it's easy for people to go, the online version of me is a bit of an asshole. So, you know, wee, here we yeah, go. So, so enjoy this cock flock I just sent you away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, the, the scaling has definitely been an issue over time. And I guess that idea of how do you set the ground rules for an online world that means it can be, you know, self-policing enough that everybody feels happy and comfortable within the space and it's and it doesn't devolve into something where uh, an awful lot of people just say, I don't know if I really even want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I see the, the, the totally the picture you're painting because I, I used these MMOs at one point. Now, I never used Second Life, but I did uh, participate in uh, a game called There, which was created by Makina Technologies. And that had once been used as a platform for the military, actually, to, you know, create this this worldwide communication 3D platform, right? And so, cool, yeah. isn't that still going? Uh, oh yeah, it's still going. I still, still around, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it did pass away briefly though, and mm-hmm. then it got revived again. But yeah, uh, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But built, it's built on you know on, on a foundation of like you mentioned, it's a small yet dedicated community of people. You know, it's it's not scaled to the point where you're going to walk into somebody on the street wearing a, you know, a, a their shirt, right? You just, it's just not going to happen. Um, so to me, when I start to look at the parallels between what an, an oasis could be and what current technologies are, I, I see these smaller pockets rather than everybody, you know, whipping out their phone, like in a, every Disney movie you've ever seen that has a worldwide connected app on it. These things just don't seem to, to translate that well. Um, and as we start to look at the world of esports and how recreation is almost a digital thing as opposed to a physical thing, right? Uh, I start to look at what the Oasis could be, but then I start to look at the failures of some things like PlayStation Home that used to be also the yeah. social MMO, you know, hosted through mm-hmm. the platform. So, I mean, that's where I start to ask the question of what what's really failing in these worlds? I mean, yeah, what, what I, do you think? Yeah, I think I really do think there is an important relationship between who is behind the project and do people find the the feeling of you know, of putting effort into becoming part of this world um, worthwhile? Yeah, and do they feel like they're getting enough back? Because you know there is an element there of an investment in a sense in committing to a space especially when they're trying to give you some tools that will let you be creative in that space. Um, there's a sense there of going, okay, well, you know, do I, you know, what part of this do I actually own? And it doesn't, it's not even a question of buying and selling so much as, you know, how, how confident am I that in a year's time, the things that I'm creating here are still going to, you know, be here to exist and, what are the rules of these spaces? And I think that's where things like PlayStation Home, yeah, you know, I remember logging in and sort of looking around it and just thinking yeah. like the 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 landmarks or almost like the invitation to do things was not really there. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of go, okay, I'm here. Um, you know, that that cliff face of what do I do next? 
was yeah. so apparent, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. you, you're kind of like, well, okay, um, without any prompt to find out what I do next, mm-hmm. uh, this is, you know, this is just, that was novel. But in the end, <laughs> yeah. to catch up with my friends, it's easy to use a chat app or, you know, the PlayStation chat, mm-hmm. than to think I'm going to go into this virtual physical space and try to find them. <laughs> it was like, mm, yeah. Yeah, 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 this isn't making it a better experience in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of like where I was thinking uh, as you were describing. It's like PlayStation Home felt like it was this weird, virtually animated chat room where, uh, instead, but instead of like actually viewing the chat and being able to just hop into a conversation, you had to walk somewhere and figure something out. And it was like this really odd version of trying to simulate real life and a chat room at the same time. And it just felt like it was clunky and didn't quite work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like mm-hmm. my my son has actually been playing VR chat recently. And yeah, I know we're getting to VR stuff a bit more later, mm-hmm. but it, I, it was funny talking to him about why he kind of found that as an interesting thing to explore. And as much as it is almost that sense of like, well, it's VR chat rooms and you're walking around and you can modify your avatar and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, that that gameplay was sort of inherent to it as well. And, you know, so in that sense, it 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 sounded to me like for him that was an evolution from you know Roblox and mm-hmm. Minecraft and you know going on to like the you know servers like Hypixel and stuff in Minecraft right where it's like you're going into a social space and then that social space has these like physical markers in in the space of where oh, let's go and play you know bed wars and so their friends will all go and pick which bed wars server they're going to go and play a game in but they are physically walking into that space. And for them, it's like, yeah, this this all makes sense to them, you know, mentally. It's not just picking off a list. It's more fun to, you know, meet up on a server and then run off to this place where you're going to go and play a cool game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so VRChat, he was saying, had that same thing where there's almost like versions of Among Us within VRChat, you know, so you could play yeah. murder mystery party games within this VR space and also meet up in a more open space to just, chat you know so Mm -hmm. i think that's where the infusing it with a sense of play is a huge part and something that i think you know playstation at home reminded me a lot of just some of the 90s like CompuServe type you know 2d rooms that you could visit right it's like oh it's a high-res 3d room but it's not really giving us anything more than we'd already had you know 15 years earlier and that's what's so funny about this is that even in in uh, ready player one the people who are in this are quote unquote planning up right they're they're coming together on this massive scaled mm-hmm. you know th- visual or a vr driven world but then they still localize themselves uh you know the the birds of a feather you know routine right yeah and yep and, and the main character and and their friends they they're just a small pocket of them and and so that's why i I kind of struggle with the idea of any social MMO truly staying relevant. As you mentioned, when it comes to the scarcity of any digital driven world, there's a point where that server gets shut off, right? Almost every, you know, every major video game with an online presence that came out, Mm -hmm. maybe, uh, well, not, not every single one, but a majority of them. Majority of you. Well, I mean, heck, like even PlayStation 2 games had online service. Like it definitely was not like to the extent of what we had with the PlayStation 3, 4 or like 5 now. But yeah, it was simple. Like you could play against other people online and those servers 
what managed somehow to last until like what three years ago was when the last PlayStation 2 online thing finally got the axe. <laughs> but yeah, you know, those those communities, like again, like even then, like I'm sure it was like a tight group of like 20 people or five just really yeah. sticking together to keep the PlayStation 2 online going. Yeah. But look, yeah, I always feel like, you know, as something scales, right, it ultimately it always then has its own you know, ghettos beyond that, like, and not in a negative sense, ghettos, but yeah, everybody kind yeah. of forms up into little groups. And I even, it, it was something that really struck me the first time I got to visit New York was, you know, you hear about New York being this big city, huge, enormous. And then you get there and you're walking on the ground in the streets and you suddenly realize that it's like, hang on, every block is essentially its own little neighborhood, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter that, this you know we can't imagine the full scale right when we're in any space and so you start to kind of move through a space and then go oh right like this this actually neighborhood has its own vibe and and it's got like tiny corner shops here like it's not run by mega stores mm -hmm. ultimately yeah. we have local little tiny bodegas and stuff where that's where you go and grab your essentials you know and and i was like oh my god there's such a sense of community within this city that's supposedly like the biggest craziest city in the world um i think that that is the same in online spaces you know you, you don't want to stand there in the room where there's a million people mm -hmm. and and actively see a million avatars around you because you're like where what do i do what, where do i start but yeah. but that idea that you and a, a crew of friends like you love the idea that the scale is there but yeah. then how do you go and enjoy yourself in any given moment well you know, you jump into a thing that has a subset of those people and hopefully they're people that you'll get along with and enjoy hanging out with. Yeah, and then you can all have the same looking avatar of a 90s video game character. You go looking for your queen <laughs> and you become just an absolute amazing viral video for a short period of time. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, you know, Seamus, you bring a really good point up here that I, I do want to uh, mention New Zealand for a moment because... The Fight of the Concords, you know, TV show. They they actually displayed exactly what you just mentioned, almost to perfection. Mm. Because you know, you have the corner store thrift shop that that's you know supplying electronics to the neighborhood. Uh, just beneath them, you have the the Chinese restaurant slash laundromat. You know, and and they're they're feeding the the stacks of people there. And I think it is kind of the perfect visual for some of these online communities because, I mean, it's. That is what it is. It, almost every online community I've been a part of that has a 3D, you know, virtual aspect to it does the same thing. You end up meeting five or ten people, and then, yeah, you're you're clanned up. <laughs> so it's, yeah, <laughs> I, I've just never seen the the community ever be built outside of that. I in in my own experience, um, that's that's been how it is. Yeah, I th I think the important thing there, of course, is also then how does you know does the platform help you discover other like-minded people that you want to spend time with? You know, because again, it's one thing to bring in your real-world friends, but often even finding even convincing your other real-world friends to you know that this new thing I'm checking out. You know, I know we've all been hanging out on this other thing, but this new thing is is cool and. And I promise it's going to be cool and you should all come over too. But part of that first step is then, you know, one of those people has gone in there and, and had a good time in some way. Um, and that kind of then means, yeah, how do you make those initial connections so that 
if it's genuinely trying to be social, um, that that someone can come in and in some way bump into enough other people who are going to show them a good time that then that critical mass can kind of keep coming over from their word of mouth to other people. Yeah. Now, I think what, what the question for me becomes then is if we can't scale online communities when freedom and marketplaces and recreational things is, is the focus of it, in the world of you know ready player one education actually ends up being one of the the bigger aspects of why it's adopted so much right because you've got schools within the oasis and people attend them just like they would in a physical location and when i look at the other side of this coin here um i look at education throughout covid and how technology adoption accelerated so quickly over the last you know year and a half whether it's uh you know whether it's some of the virtual technologies all the different conferencing uh technologies that we now almost use every mm -hmm. single day um so looking at education uh as a as a way to move this forward as it did in the oasis i mean i don't know if it could work that way in our world you know you've got funding issues in certain places uh there's there's employment scarcity too um, finding good teachers, good people who could even run these types of rooms. Joe is a teacher himself. He can, he's shaking his head hard over there. <laughs> so, so, I mean, mm -hmm. education as a vessel for this, you know, I mean, do you think that, um, and I'm, we'll say VR for just a moment, but I mean, do you think education could be the platform for maybe getting us closer to an oasis? Um, I think pro like, I think it's probably not, purely because um, in a lot of respects, education is always this thing that we're kind of temporarily moving through. And so it ends up being like, it's more of a, uh, I think like thinking about Clubhouse at the end of last year, early this year, right? The big question around Clubhouse was, is it a platform or is it a a tool, you know, like, and ultimately it was a, sorry, or, or is it a feature? And it's like, yeah, you know, it was easy for other platforms to start adding in a feature that was enough like Clubhouse that people didn't have to go to Clubhouse. And of course, they already had their built-in, you know, group of people that um, that they could then start doing that kind of a, a audio chat experience with um, mm -hmm. instead of needing to build a whole new, you know, social graph over on Clubhouse if they didn't know who was already there. Um, I think in education, yeah, we've kind of got enough of a a division in where you can get an education service from like the major players that are out there right now um, that I don't see that moment where there is a critical mass for any one of those or a new service to come along and kind of blow away. Yeah, the, as you say, the the adoption that is required, especially from the powers that be, to say, yeah, this is the new education platform, everybody. Now, every school needs to change what they've already been doing mm -hmm. and adopt this new platform. Uh, yeah, all that kind of side of it is tricky. When you know, Google does a good job with Classroom, Microsoft does a good job with you know, with sort of the Microsoft three six five tools for school environments. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got like Khan Academy for self-directed online learning. I think, you know, if any of those things could be the thing, I think it would be more of that self-directed 
online learning kind of idea, like mm-hmm. the Khan Academies of the world, where you know it is about easy access to educational opportunities, whether or not you have you know a formal space that you're attached to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if they were then able to start creating social spaces attached to kind of you know certain classes and things um you know then maybe that's how they start to you know get some gravity around that idea of oh and you're also going to take this course with other people you can take it anytime you like or you could also say you know i'm going to start taking this course in september and a whole bunch of other people are also going to start taking it in september and we're going to have people to bounce off as part of you know taking the course um so maybe there's a little bit of that um but certainly when it comes to needing the infrastructure of actual teachers and actual school environments to participate, um, again, you know, I've, I've seen uh, locally, you know, that effort to get online learning up and running properly during the COVID lockdowns and like the, the stresses on the teachers, you know, I think for them, the idea of anybody coming along and saying, there's a new tool we want you to learn. They're like, la, 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 do not make me touch. So I've just got this one working and you want me to go to something else? Mm-hmm. No, I, from my I mean, experience in the industry, there are a lot of teachers that are like that. Like they, like the amount of teachers here um, and are, are part of the world that still want to cling to worksheets they've been using for the past 20 years instead of trying something new or doing something different. Like it's there. Uh, I completely agree because like, uh, I think like if we see this work in educational field, it's going to be something private before anything is is very on a large scale. Uh, like I know like we've got like ABC Mouse and a few other online academies. And if anything would have like a successful like Oasis like presence for education where you have some sort of avatar or VR experience learning, um, it's going to come going to have to come from like wealthy providers. Uh, otherwise, yeah. I just don't see it working. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, there's an important thing there that often the writing of these books happen, you know, and it's like it's a, it's a novel. They can comfortably overlook that idea of, mm-hmm. you know, of how did this particular thing push aside all other things to become that, you know, that universal truth in, you know, in platforms. And I think back to when even right when the, you know, the iPhone for, first launched, and smartphones started to become, you know, everywhere, that there was that phase where there was this huge resistance from, particularly within businesses where BlackBerry was the, Mm -hmm. you know, that had been the go-to platform for a long time. It was definitely great for typing emails and things. But then there were businesses that would be like, oh, it's about security and it's about this and it's about that. Mm -hmm. But I remember so many conversations with, executives at companies who were like once the executive was like screw this i want to be using an iphone like this is nice mm-hmm. to use and it gives me a better quality of life so then they're the ones now telling it how do you, you know we are making iphones work in this business mm-hmm. um yeah let's do it but there was like so much resistance to that smartphone shift um because it was like, well, these are there's certain platforms, and we've already decided that this is the right way to do it, and and here's the reasons why. Um, that yeah, you know, we kind of the idea that there's any one thing that could generate that sort of gravitational force again that would mean everything gets pushed aside, and even then, yeah, you know, ultimately, smartphones aren't just iPhones; they are 
you know, lots of different pieces of hardware with different operating systems. Well, two really now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Happily named after a food of some kind as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, it just, uh, whenever I think about these sorts of things, it's like, it's, you know, if I was writing the novel, I'd totally skip over that bit because that is the boring bit mm-hmm. of like, how did this thing win? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that is the biggest uh, challenge for any of this stuff is, you know, I mean, right, Facebook is kind of in one way the winner of what is a social, you know, a social network. Mm-hmm. There's still lots of other players. And, you know, and Facebook itself is starting to talk about, you know, the metaverse as an idea. I think in some ways they're using it as a word less than the true sort of full concept but there's still plenty of people who are like yeah but like do i trust that company to be the company and i think that's something in the book that they did do a bit of which is you know that idea that well you know halliday as the person was incredibly egalitarian and Mm -hmm. set it up so that it wouldn't become you know controlled by somebody and then that's its own tension within the novel but um you know i think there's such a yeah such a big part of that is do you even trust the platform enough to know that you know i i'm ready to let everybody agree that this should be the one true platform well so we, we've kind of straddled the line about infrastructure a couple times here though um and and i know you mentioned it originally as a not infrastructure in the sense of actual net you know of phone lines and and the ability to you know push data but um when i start to look at that aspect of this universe because something that doesn't get addressed in this book is how how this massive network can be you know created in in the united states you know there are major cities that are getting fiber uh investment and some some cities won't see it for maybe 50 more years and so it's usually a question of funding whether that is, uh, you know, politically driven, but in the case of Australia, I mean, you mentioned this too. It's not just here. Uh, the uh, national broadband network, um, you know, in the in the past year, you mentioned how this should be a, a landmark technology that we're all talking about, but we're not. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. these, the, these issues persist everywhere. So, um, I guess, what's your take from that from the localized aspect of where you are? Yeah, yeah, the yeah, the National Broadband Network was, you know, I think first proposed back in around oh, uh, 2008, 2009. Um and it was that idea of the, you know, the major upgrade to all the infrastructure in the country, Australia uh through until the late 90s had one uh like we had a national uh provider for all communication. So it was, you know, owned by the government. It's called uh, Telecom, then became known as Telstra. And the government in the late 90s decided, you know, let's sell it off and start to, you know, privatize it. And I remember at the time, actually, you know, as a big late 90s nerd kind of going, networks are about to become everything. This is the worst time to sell (laughs) our perfect piece of, you know, single infrastructure that the government could just say, great, now let's upgrade everything, you know, and without needing to argue with a company about how to do it. Uh, And, you know, sure enough, that's exactly what happened when they proposed the NBN. And at that point, Telstra was largely privatized. Um, The government was still technically the majority shareholder, but it was still, you know, an arm's length thing Uh, that, yeah, that Telstra actually didn't put in 
the best bid for this, you know, tender for who will upgrade the country's uh, broadband infrastructure. And yeah, the people who were running Telstra at the time were notorious for the fact that they were kind of like, screw you, government. Like, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the government went, oh, well, actually, we're going to build a new company. You know, and they went, let's let's ignore Telstra then if they're going to be assholes about it. And we're going to build a new one called MBN and it's going to basically roll out all new cables everywhere uh, based on fiber instead. And, you know, we'll just ignore the copper. Then they started to discover things like, right, how hard that is when it's like, oh, you know what we need? Actually, we need the pits, the holes in the ground where all the cables currently run are owned by Telstra and we're now going to have to license the holes in the ground. You know? And suddenly that's that yeah. big thing, right? Like you say, rolling out this infrastructure, you're like literally the expensive part is the labor of putting cables in the ground. That same thing where people so often forget that it's like, how do we have amazing communication around the world? Because there are giant cables in the sea. <laughs> it's not magical wireless everywhere. There are giant cables running under the ocean from Australia yeah. to America, from Australia to Singapore, like all these kind of cables. <laughs> yeah. But for a while, it's my understanding, we came under the attack of sharks. Like, like that was the right, thing. Like, there's all kinds of cables. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like crazy stuff, and it's, um, it's yeah, so wild. But that's it. You know, you got to put this stuff in the ground. I think you know, Elon Musk is obviously probably leading the charge on the whole Starlink project, where it is kind of going. What if we just do really good satellites? But if we do like hundreds of them, and mm -hmm. try, try to just have them kind of pointing anywhere someone might need one. Um, you know, I know there's a small region in Australia that now has access to the Starlink satellite system, uh, and it is better than the available wired infrastructure because it is kind of country areas in you know, southern mm -hmm. New South Wales and Victoria. Um, yeah. So there's certainly that potential is, you know, um, you know, someone crazy enough to be Elon Musk throwing satellites around might manage to go, well, we can now ignore the wider infrastructure because you know we've just spent all that money putting it in space instead um but even then you'll add the you know cables it's hard to beat cables for reliability right and that's where mm -hmm. the mbn was such a good idea but it did ultimately get you know governments changed the politics changed uh you know the current government believes less in the idea of spending a whole bunch of money in order to give every you know do it once that was one of the yeah there was one politician who had a bit of a weighing uh like a, a way up vote in one particular election and he put it so simply he said actually the reason he was sticking with one particular government was he said the mbn he felt he was from a regional area he said this is going to be one of the greatest projects for people in regional Australia. And he said, everybody I talked to has, all the experts I've talked to have said, do it once, do it right, do it with fiber. And yeah. that's how you fix the future of communication, you know, and governments then changed and they took a lot of the fiber out of the mix. And now it is just a giant mixed bag and it depends on where you live. Like mm -hmm. it always yeah. used to, where do you mm -hmm. live? That's going to make all the difference. And that's kind of annoying, but yeah, that's that's the really hard part when it comes to equity of access. And that's the barrier that we we have here as well, because we have we have both local and strong national presence from 
from a utility supply standpoint, because AT&T has a very big influence here. Um, but then we have these smaller regional companies that have provided service to, like you mentioned, some of these low-lying regional areas, right? So um, in the cases where they're not being fought over, though, it is a constant struggle with converting copper to pond right so that's yeah that's the that's the constant labor issue that's the that's once again we're talking about scarcity here right that's the scarcity in being able to adopt that type of technology where we are but um shifting gears though to back to vr like you mentioned yeah uh, vr to me seemed like probably the most uh the most likely thing to happen i think in a, in in relation to a ready player one because we've already seen how vr in the pandemic can help you know keep families closer together but like you mentioned too it's providing entertainment it's it's allowing people to get education in maybe dangerous situations mm -hmm. so vr as a as a technology you know i guess the the, the real idea i i have is not not if when and mm -hmm. if if not 2050 when do you think VR should be, you know, largely adopted? And will it be as dangerous as the virtual boy once was? Oh, <laughs> yes. Red colors. Burn my days, eyes with your weird red colors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, I'm, yeah, I'm a fan. I've got it set up in my living room. I've got like the, yeah, the light boxes actually you know, attached to the walls and I don't use it as much as I, should so i mean maybe that's its own thing right but um it always i think the the big breakthrough is definitely uh, it's definitely going to be when does somebody get the headset simplified to the point where you can just kind of throw it on and you don't need to set up your rig for a session you know, and yeah. and I know, like talking to folks from HTC, um, I did a um, I did a meeting session with them once where they were showing me this new meeting tech that they were using. It was very early in the pandemic, and you know they were kind of already using this tool internally, and they were making it available more widely. Um, but what fascinated me was, I think, in my head, there's one picture you have of you know. What's that going to be like to have this meeting in VR? What what would be different about that to being in Zoom or you know any kind of a, a a meeting we're already having on a screen? And it was so fundamentally different. It felt really nice to be able to have a meeting with these people. There were like you could sit at a table, you know, you use your pointer to just kind of zap yourself to I want to be in that seat or I want to be over there. Um, yeah. But the but the really big thing that kind of shifted was there was such a clarity about where you were looking and even just by like holding the controllers, I was having a conversation with, uh, with the guy from HTC uh, and, and I was gesticulating a bit and then I realized like, oh yeah, my avatar's hands are moving because my hands are moving and yeah. my eye line is going to exactly where I'm looking in the world. And it meant, you know, if he was speaking to me, I was looking at him and in a way that, right, we can have this conversation right now. And now and then I might kind of look over here to look something up while we're talking about it to make sure I'm you know, going to get a reference right or something. But 
in VR, it's like you can so tell that I've distracted myself and I'm now not even looking at you while you're looking at me talking to me, you know, or or like, or oh, they're not having a side conversation because I can see the two of them talking to each other and the audio can have proximity attached to it so that they're quieter because I'm not as close to them right now as I am to another person. Like so many of these spatial elements start to become, there's such a real sense of presence attached to that that it it really felt different. But the trick right now is just so few people have easy access to it, right? You have to go to a special venue to have a great 40-minute session of VR and after 40 minutes you feel tired and you're ready for a break and you don't want to spend all day in VR like that. Um, So I think, you know, there's all the talk of, you know, of Apple and, and, you know, obviously Oculus has kind of kept iterating on headsets you can easily just pop on. Uh, the guy I met with from HTC actually said that while I was in my living room in my little you know, setup, and it did mean I needed to, you know, take the laptop in there, plug in the the headset, launch it, make sure Steam was happy, and then, you know, get everything up and running. Um, he had a new, you know, wireless headset uh, unit. And so for him, the meeting, you know, the meeting calendar reminder went off and then he just reached over and popped that headset on at his desk. And so that barrier was so much lower for him to just literally go, oh, I've got a scheduled meeting and it's starting in one minute. Okay, well, I'll wait another 30 seconds before I put the headset mm-hmm. on. You know, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll jump straight in as soon as I put on that headset. Uh, so once we start getting those, you know, affordable headsets that pretty much are going to be smartphone powered, right? I think that's going to be mm-hmm. the thing is... Yeah just then it is that anywhere you want to go stick the thing on you know in that sense it's like it's probably going to be augmented reality that first convinces everybody to that there's real value and then almost Mm -hmm. will then perhaps go backwards from ar to vr as you know as an ar headset is able to then black out everything else rather than Mm -hmm. just overlay stuff um in my head that's the trajectory and i keep thinking it's just a few more years away, but it's been just a few more years away for a lot of years now. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I've consulted uh, roughly four or five different articles on this. And this is in the past few months where you have tech leaders that are all saying, well, I think it's only 10 years away. And I go, all right. So I keep thinking about, you know, back to the future part two and what 2015 is supposed to look like. And I go, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that was the 10 years ago of 95. That was yep. the 10 years ago of 86. So it's yeah. just like, you know. Mm-hmm. Eh. Yeah, like, I mean, any any cartoon in the 80s, what they thought the year 2000 would look like, really. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was going to say, we're supposed to be in Mad Max right now. We should we all should be leather be. clad and have, mm-hmm. you know, masks over our faces. I mean. Shiny and crime. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well. We've we've kind of towed the line on this a couple times today. I, I want to kind of go around and, and ask everybody about the viability of this Oasis future. You've you've alluded to it a little bit about the future of it, um, but based on the infrastructure limitations that we have, the hardware limitations that we have, right? I mean, it's not like we have the military investing in this nearly as much as maybe they did, you know, cell technologies or broadband technologies years ago. Um, Really, what do we think the chances are of this happening? And 
the years in which it would most likely occur. Do you want me to go first or are you going to go? Well, I mean, you're definitely the professional on this <laughs> compared to me. Like, <laughs> I, will, I will make up an answer. <laughs> but <laughs> Look, I, I, I feel like, you know, of all the people out there that I think could make this thing real, um, the I think Tim Sweeney at Epic is the one that has the greatest potential to pull it off because you know the fact that he's he's fighting some big fights against both Google and Apple for you know sort of freedom of payment systems on you know their uh, app platforms. Obviously, it's self-serving in certain regards, but he he kind of is picking these fights in a way that you know I think speaks to his own belief in the idea that there should be a freedom of access on all the different platforms. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with the full, you know, the full way his argument works, but I think he's, he kind of definitely seems like he's trying to fight the good fight there. Um, and when we look at Fortnite, I think Fortnite, you know, is his uh, Trojan horse almost for, you know, trying to build out a genuine, virtual space where people can hang out and do anything they like you know as much yes. as the battle royale is the thing that blew up for Fortnite and made it all of the billions of dollars um the creative mode is i think where they keep sort of putting more and more effort into its evolution and while we've got tools like roblox out there um and of course you know the minecrafts of the world um Later this year, I think it is, when there is like a major update coming to Fortnite where it's moving to the Unreal 5 engine, which is the next generation yeah. Unreal engine. Mm -hmm. yep. And there's also a whole bunch of new creative tools, essentially programming languages that are going to be released that will work within Fortnite. So that, yeah, people's, it will almost become like the actual polished high resolution version of Roblox in a lot of regards there because people will be able to make something and then put that up as a thing that they've made and invite people into those spaces um you know i'm sure at some point they'll add some kind of you know commerce system to a lot of that side of it mm -hmm. but there's a lot of those things when i think applying a vr helmet to any 3d world is easy in that sense you know the hard bit is making a compelling 3d world people want to spend time in and I think that's yeah. something that Fortnite has done and and the way in which, you know, in that classic Oasis sense of of all of the brands have been have become happy to hang out in Fortnite in a way that means, you know, you do have avatars that are based on cool 90s characters or or whatever your favorite, you know, superhero from but like who would have thought that one game would get both DC and Marvel to let their characters coexist <laughs> mm -hmm. in a virtual space? You know, I often yeah. wonder how, you know, at what point did they just kind of pat each other on the back and go, yeah, we're cool. Yeah. Disney and DC and every other property known to man has just gone. Yeah. Why not have a skin in this game? That seems mm -hmm. cool. Um, so it, like that's the bit that blows me away is everyone's kind of agreed to let this be a shared space. Yeah, you have to you know, earn your skins in some regards, which again in that Oasis sense, right? Like there are certain skins you can only get if you grind it out for a season and get to the final stages of a season and you've got the cool skin now that not many people 
can ever have because you got it. Um, yeah. This season is Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. And I'm like, God damn it. I wish I played that <laughs> yeah. game enough that I could unlock Rick Sanchez. Cause he's even been done in like cell shaded style. And you're like, that's mm -hmm. kind of awesome that a, the 3d world can be designed. So you can have a cell shaded character sharing the space, like all that kind of stuff. You're like, there's a technical polish there that so many other things don't have. And the yeah. idea that at some point they can just flick a switch and pretty much go, yeah, like now it's a, it's a, 3D space for, for and it works with VR. Um, that bit is so much easier than all the other stuff they've already managed to pull off. So um, I don't see any other humans out there, you know, that mm -hmm. are kind of sitting in that space where I think, you know, like I'd almost in that Halliday sense, like Tim Sweeney is the guy that I could imagine one day, you know, deciding to tick some box and go, oh, this actually, this now lives in a trust. Like it's technically owned by us, but it sits in a trust. We can't change it. We can't, like this now is kind of owned by everybody in a certain regard um, in the name of, you know, trying to make people comfortable that this is this, you know, shared universe that he definitely has often spoken of wanting to see exist in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Joe, just for the sake of me usually having the last word, I'm going to hop in before you here because... Oh, that's fine. Seamus, what I think is um, a good analogy for this this technology adoption and where it's headed is very similar to how time works with regards to like black holes and how time is perceived differently the closer you are to certain objects that have that, that pull. So uh, with regards to, let's use Japan as an example. Japan decided, you know, post-World War II that we're going to focus on technology. We want to be the hub of the world for it. And so it's not that, uh, like, from a social evolution standpoint, that anyone's behind somebody else, you know, country to country. But when we look to Japan, I mean, they have, <laughs> there's a man who just married a hologram last year. I mean, they're, they have dating apps where people are having relationships with with you know fully ai driven persons and so for you know for us here in the united states looking to japan and going i can't possibly understand that jump yet because i don't live in it i, I i'm not next to it all the time but it, that's happening on this world right now things that are a present mind in a world like uh, blade runner are happening in japan right now yeah and like japan so has a beautiful here. thing there where they yeah, I think it's out of the kind of spiritual basis of their culture where everything can be imbued with spirit. And I think mm -hmm. in some ways it's kind of meant they have this much more um, positive relationship with the way sort of you know, tech has evolved because, right, it's part of why they can write some of the scariest horror movies known to man because, right, like yes. Ring, it's like, well, yeah, because a videotape can have a, an evil spirit in it and and it will kill you if you play it and on that flip side yeah they have that sense that you know that technology itself can have a certain spirit and we can have a connection with it whereas you know yeah in western cultures we've often had the whole and and the tech is going to murder us right like that's just yeah. how it works um yeah. so somehow they've had this more positive attitude towards how we and technology can yeah almost you know become partners uh that is quite yeah different to 
us Western folk thinking, yeah, it's going to, it's going to kill us, right? Like if we keep pushing them with brooms, they're going to remember that and then they're going to murder us. And that's, that's where I, I wanted to use that black hole analogy because that's where I think I stand right now is that I think part of the barrier to doing an Oasis style, you know, environment is that, that we're, we're not all on the same trajectory, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and, and so that's where I think the, the real conversation is going to be for most of us. Um, now, as far as the actual dates go for this, I mean, you know, as well as I do that 10 years in Japan works differently than 10 years in central Wisconsin. So (laughs) there's, there's going to be noticeable differences there. So, um, really, I, I think, uh, if, if anybody is going to be able to answer the question, I would say it would be the Japanese right now. I mean, they're, they're probably going to be able to tell us, uh, based on on what they've chosen to focus on as a country you know and and unfortunately i haven't read many uh many editorials from them on this i probably should (laughs) but um but but i don't know i i I think that um just based on the estimates that i've seen anywhere people are saying anywhere from 10 to 25 years we could be seeing maybe not worldwide adoption but we're you know it's it's uh it's not that far away so um yeah that's that's my take on it joe what have you got um i don't know i don't think going straight to something like um like the oasis is going to happen in a really relative future um i just think like in in the case of these like education or even like i think mark we've talked about this like when uh there's that big solar road like idea and craze that happened uh, was oh, brought up yeah. in the United States like uh, like yeah. years ago. It's like, what's the feasibility of this? Like, like you said, like when you're looking at like uh, the education system, it's gonna be like, all right, so that's gonna be like per school district, and they're gonna look like, all right, well, what's the cost of us doing this? What's the likelihood of this working? And we have to prove that this is a more feasible system than just busing the kids to a school, putting them in a building where they're gonna work one on one with the teacher. Where I think if you're gonna see you're gonna see something much more like 2009 Star Trek with uh, how the Vulcan children are educated, where it's literally like a little pod with um, a circle around them with a screen, and they're just getting blasted with with like questions and, and stuff yeah. to them, and the teachers just kind of walking <laughs> around them to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, because that'll be something that makes more feasible sense than something like the Oasis, which I think and it's in its best possible working form is going to be entertainment where this is going to be something put on by a large company where it makes sense. This is a place where you go to have fun and people will pay a subscription price to be a part of it, to keep it going. It's, it's going to, it's going to be something like world of Warcraft, right? It's going to be something that has to be so well done that you are the few or what are like the only companies that's still able to charge a subscription price for your service where all these other games are doing the same thing but like they have to be free to even keep players coming in anymore and when that happens you do not have the same quality of game like as much as like i loved playing star trek online for a while you look at star trek online now versus world of warcraft there is a clear superior like content between the two of them so i mean as far as like something oasis happening why where it's like literally interwoven into like every aspect of life 
like if that happens like i don't see it happening by 2050 <laughs> like this would have to be something that's it's pretty far out there um you like and again it's for the same reason like you like you said like rural areas like when even think of like alternating current like electricity was coming around mm -hmm. you had farms for like i don't know decades after like you had um electricity being a staple in large cities before those communities even got you know something better than a candle so i just see something <laughs> this advanced and this difficult to maintain like if it happens to the point where it's like in every part of our lives it's going to be pretty far out there we'll be stacking our rvs in ohio pretty pretty sky high before we we get to the oasis <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i do love the kind of the the whole mm -hmm. project of trying to predict these things because you know over the years we kind of just keep seeing how wrong we get this stuff you know like i always love thinking back to you know you mentioned star trek and you know gene roddenberry kind of came up with transporters and all these and like warp drives and things mm -hmm. and in the original series star trek they like they walked information backwards and forwards between terminals mm -hmm. with discs yeah because yeah. as as big as he could think in those other way and like the transporter right it was apparently just devised because it was an easy way to get between the set up there and down there without <laughs> needing to build props of ships and things <laughs> that could fly up and down you're like clever you know, <laughs> clever sci-fi work there yeah. but yeah like they were walking boxes of disks backwards and forwards and plugging them into terminals because the idea of a networked information system was no, not even close. No, no. And, and, you know, yeah, so there's just so much of that stuff where you think, I mean, I remember the Segway, right, as well, when that was first launched. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was launched, Dean Kamen and all these breakfast shows are talking about how it's the future of transport. And it was like, I do remember mm -hmm. that day in an office having someone say, oh my God, this thing's amazing. And I just remember saying, uh, what are they gonna do to modify every road to make it perfect for segways versus mm -hmm. cars? Like uh, the amount of changes that would need to happen out there on the actual real world yeah. means this thing is, it's kind of, it's not really fit for the the sidewalk. I'll use the American mm -hmm. term here. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's called a footpath here, by the way. That's just, you know, that's the difference. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not fit for sharing, you know, the mm -hmm. sidewalk with humans and it's not really good enough to share the road. And so you have to make its own space. And of course, it ended up being a hobbyist device and not changing the world. But mm -hmm. then the things, again, that come by stealth, like having ubiquitous wireless internet in our pocket with all the world's information accessible at any time, somehow we couldn't think of that until it was here <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah well i mean it's for the same reasons that in 1989 uh an android with the ability to you know process at 60 teraflops was a big deal right and now and this is even <laughs> as recent as uh 20 what 2016 mm -hmm. we have computers that are 500 times faster than commander data right based on their their estimates for what fast was so yeah i mean it's it, it, i think it's possible uh with more time that i uh and as necessities pop up now we're not going to have mm -hmm. a global pandemic every single year but i mean who, who knows we're, 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 and that has hopefully. been an accelerant for some of this stuff you know that mm -hmm. people's comfort with 
being forced to sit in front of a screen, you know, mm-hmm. and that that and that it can be at least somewhat fulfilling socially and that it can, you know, like the, and particularly so many businesses that, you know, leaders have had that mindset that it's like, well, if you're not at your desk, you're not really working. And it's yeah. like, I know plenty of people who've sat at desks and they weren't working, um, you know, and someone else who would work, would work from home and work their ass off because they wanted to prove that they could do it and that they mm-hmm. could be a contributing member of their team. Um, we've kind of gotten over some of those social hurdles that I do think, you know, some of these will accelerate because there's a certain level of cultural comfort now with people knowing that this is viable to be at a distance, but still be socially and, you know, and in a business sense kind of, you know, working together. Which is a, I think it's a perfect way to conclude because I mean, you're in Australia, we're in Wisconsin (laughs) in the U S yeah. And Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a conversation that, you know, wouldn't have been possible years ago. So, I mean, just, really awesome to get to spend this time with you Seamus and, and kind of pick your brain on this um and we also like to end our shows by giving our guests the the, the floor to talk about uh where we can find you as well as you know what you've got going on yeah cool so um easiest place to find me usually is on twitter i'm at Seamus s-e-a-m-u-s um and I've, I've slowed down on twitter a little bit lately i was trying to literally give my brain a rest from just the fire hose of doom scrolling that is the world right now um yeah. but uh, yeah you'll always find me there i definitely keep going back uh where most of my work now appears is at biteside so you can go to biteside.com uh we also have a newsletter there where i do little weekly brain dumps of kind of columning and opining on the state of technology uh, and also just try to share cool links. So, you know, I think in the newsletter, we, instead of just sharing our own stories, I do a bit of curation Mm -hmm. of here's cool stuff that I've spotted during the week um, from other outlets. Like there was an awesome story this week about a, um, uh, I think it was on Vice where somebody has made nine AI generated faces that are almost like master keys that can be used to pretend to be almost anyone else through AI recognition systems. Um, and you're like, oh my God, that is, I can, you can kind of understand what they mean by a master key in a sense that it's like, oh, one of these nine should fit almost any AI recognition system. Um, and so stuff like that, where I'm just like thought for thought provoking cool links of the week in the newsletter. Um, because I know people hate having to go to our website, like you know, regularly to find out what's been going on. So that'll that can turn up in your inbox once a week if you grab that. And Byteside itself is at Byteside on Twitter too. Awesome. Well, we'll, we'll definitely uh, hope we can drive some people there for you. Because I mean, I I love the site. Oh, yeah, the Byteside I, podcast. Mm-hmm. By the way, yeah. if if yeah. you're listening to this mm-hmm. in an app, right, you can just type <laughs> Byteside in and you'll find it. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Seamus, once again, thank you so much for helping us bring this conversation to our viewers. We we've absolutely enjoyed getting to talk with you about this. And yeah, we we look forward to to seeing where you go next with with Bite and, and your projects there. Cheers. No, it's been really great fun chatting about this. And yes, theorizing. Let's uh, roll this back in 10 years and see how wrong we all were. <laughs> I think that's the fun part of all of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
perfect all right well i'll stop recording well joe that was a an absolutely kick-ass time with seamus Byrne. uh seamus is just such a wealth of knowledge i mean i wasn't like it's not like i was surprised that an award-winning tech journalist knows his shit about technology <laughs> But holy crap, was was getting to talk with him uh, absolutely a treat. And especially because, you know, we tried to predict the future ourselves. But I think coming from someone who is in the industry uh, and actually talked to us about the future of where things could go, totally awesome as it relates to an Oasis, Ready Player One, and, mm -hmm. and kind of picking that future out. Oh, completely. Like, this was such, such a fun time. I'm glad we got to talk to him and that we've made a new connection in the digital realm. Uh, which, speaking of uh, connections in digital realms, I think what we should do is give some shout-outs to our friends who have helped us along the way uh, and who are just, you know, out doing their own thing now. Uh, so someone who I'd like to give a quick shout-out to is the Podcast Father, who just released his September episode, which covers some really, really great independent creators. Yeah, he's got his whole episode list that's out, so his show's are going to be booked and you can find all of that here through his twitter um and yeah i, I think that uh, it's really fun to to give shout outs across the twitterverse as we da, did last da, week <laughs> <laughs> yeah continuing in that tradition uh one of our earliest friends on twitter is uh, pixie from the next on stage one podcast and really want to give her a couple shout outs here because we've we've collaborated a lot on what's called Twitter spaces where mm -hmm. uh, the community kind of comes together. It's like a, a nice audio chat room for people to, you know, share their thoughts and do things like that. Um, and uh, Pixie has really kind of spearheaded building that community out and sharing, you know, helpful things with other creators who are just up and coming. Uh, on the topic of Next on Stage 1, though, it is an adult-oriented podcast uh, coming from, from folks who have actually worked in, like, the, the stripping industry, the adult oh. entertainment industry. Um, so it's, it's a not safe for work podcast, but I think you're going to enjoy uh, what they have there. Some some very interesting stories from the field. Um, but next on stage one is actually wrapping up its current season. They just celebrated their 50th episode. Um, so go ahead and check it out. They've got uh, stories about strippers and and some fun, but terrible things that have happened along the way. So definitely uh, give them a shout out. Yep. And if you're ready to revisit something that you may have watched a while ago and, and hear about some people who are also re-watching something they watched a while ago. How about our friends at Sudden But Inevitable, who we had way back when we did our Firefly Week. Uh, they are now currently re-watching Cowboy Bebop, one of the most prolific anime series ever made. And honestly, this is a go-to anime that I recommend to my friends who don't even like it, and they usually like Cowboy Bebop. So if it is something you've watched before and really enjoyed, check out our friends at Sudden, at Sudden But Inevitable as they rewatch Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, our friend uh, Jesse, as well as uh, Ricky D, who joined us for our breakdown, mm -hmm. they're, they're doing that every week. They're doing yeah. a live cast as well, so you can jump on in and, and uh, look at their analysis as they break that down. Um, but similar to last week, we are not going to give you a preview because we'd rather let you see that unfold throughout our social media, so stay tuned. Got some very big guests coming up, so uh, we can't wait to share it with you, but we don't want to blow the lid on that. We want this to be special, unique, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. But until next time, keep on dissecting.